Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome, everyone, to the fourth Baseball America podcast of the week, along with Jim Callis, live from Chicagoland. I'm John Manuel back here in Durham. Uh, Jim, I don't know if I've ever done a four-podcast week, but two college podcasts, a first-day draft podcast with Connor Glassy, winding it up with our heaviest hitter. You're, you're batting cleanup. What a big shock. Although, I guess, sabermetrically, we probably should have put you in the one hole or the three hole. That's okay. I, I just play wherever... The manager asked me to play. So and, stratomatic, and stratomatic, we would have put you one hole. Um, we want to get you the most at-bats. But we're here to talk about the draft, not about stratomatic. Uh, Jim, uh, congratulations. Great job on Monday. Your uh, touchstone, uh, your touchscreen skills are impressive. I hope uh, we don't lose you to NBC News or to uh, MSNBC or Fox News for politics coverage because you did a great job cir- making little red circles on the screen. You're very good at that. Thank you. Thank uh, you. I, I found it much easier to do that. Uh, you know, Matt Yaloff, who I did all the, the touchscreen uh, segments with, just made me feel very comfortable. It was just like the two of us were talking, and uh, I, I just I felt as comfortable as I have in the five years I've been doing draft broadcasts for ESPN or MLB networks. I really enjoyed that. That's cool. And number two, congratulations on your once again on another mock draft victory over the forces of evil, also known as Jonathan Mayo, who's neither <laughs> who's neither evil nor uh, but who was also a great guy, but uh, really neat that you. Uh, what do you what was the final tally on that? It, it was six five, very dramatic. I was, uh, you know, having Danny Holson go number two, which nobody saw coming. It, once you start missing guys, it snowballs because then wherever you had Holson gone, you're wrong on that pick, and whoever you had in that slot screws up another pick. And so I, I, after 21 picks in the first round, Jonathan led me three to two. It was quite a battle. <laughs> and then I got four the next eight and edged him uh, six to five. Although I'm, I'm, I'm kicking myself because I did not have Swihart. I had Hedges as the Red Sox catcher at 26, and I should have worked on that one harder and pinned him down as to which guy they liked better. So it could have been seven to five. But uh, I think the winning, uh, the winning guy for me was Robert Stevenson at 27, put me over the top. So thank you. Chris Buckley of the Cincinnati Red Sky director. Thank you, Robert Stevenson. Uh, that that made it all come together for me. That's pretty cool. I'm also impressed that you've pushed past uh, 10,000 followers on your way to 11,000. I'm I'm up to 3,600, which is a uh, which is nice. But uh, you're, you're a Twitter monster. So uh, if you're not already following Jim Callis at Jim Callis BA, uh, let's go ahead and delve right into the draft, Jim. You already mentioned it. The big surprise, obviously, was Danny Holton at two. What made that such a big surprise? Like, was it just the fact that we didn't think that Danny Holson would be the – that if they didn't go position player, that the Mariners would take someone else? Or was it that the Mariners – we just thought that we were 100% locked in on a position player? I think it was more the latter. You know, it certainly wasn't that Danny Holson didn't belong at the top of the draft. You know, he was, I think, under consideration for the Pirates, although I've been told he was not the second choice to Garrett Cole. There was some mystery guy who was the second choice who we may never know. But Danny Holson, you know, was in the running to go one. In the running, you know, I think would have gone three or possibly four uh, had he not gone two. But but we kept hearing, you know, and Seattle's tough because Jack Zarensic, you know, when he was with the Brewers, now with the Mariners, it's all on lockdown there. You don't get a lot directly from the Mariners compared to some other teams. 
So what you get about the Mariners' picks comes from the people picking around them. And everybody thought they were locked in on a hitter. If they weren't going Anthony Rendon because of the shoulder injury, that it was going to be either Bubba Starling or Francisco Lindor. And I think if you know, obviously you were watching the draft broadcast. I think Danny Holson was shocked to go number two. No uh, doubt. I don't think he realized that was coming. I know just from my phone calls, trying to figure out where guys were. Uh, you know, wasn't real sure that where Danny Holson was going if he didn't go one. You know, if he's going to go three, four, five, whatever. And so I think that was it was more of a surprise just because everybody thought Seattle was going going with a bat. Yeah, I think we really did think they were going with a bat, and uh, I, you know, like you said, I don't think you can knock necessarily Danny Holton. I'm not as big on Danny Holton, maybe as some people would be, and maybe I need to get over that and be bigger on Danny Holton. But uh, him going well, two was definitely a surprise. You, Go ahead. Well, I'll throw a question to you because you know one of the interesting things about working for Baseball America is when we do lists, their combined effort. It's not necessarily how you would have stacked up the top 200, or I would have stacked up the top 200. I think most people agreed there were six clear top guys at the top of this draft. If you're drafting, you know, money's not an object. You don't, you know, you're just drafting for generic teams that don't have specific needs. How would you have lined up the six players in the draft this year? Just based on what everybody's saying, I probably would have gone Bundy and then my personal cheese ball probably would have been Bauer. I probably would have gone Bundy, Bauer. Then I'd probably go Rendon, Cole, Starling, Holson. And I, and I would I would be close to that. I, I, I've become the Anthony Rendon apologist because I think he's going to be fine when the shoulder's healthy. But I would have gone Rendon one, Bundy two, Bauer three, Cole four, Holson five, Starling six. Yeah, I believe in, in Starling a little bit more than uh, than most. So, uh, I, you know, I, I, I believe in the bat, I guess. Uh, I just believe in the athleticism. I just was talking to a scout about the top six picks today, as a matter of fact. Uh, and it was pretty funny. Um, and this was a guy who just uh, w- would not agree with you on uh, on uh, Anthony Rendon, poking holes at Anthony Rendon uh, on a healthy Anthony Rendon. Thought the defense was more average rather than plus. Thought the bat the, it would be good, but questioned the impact. Uh, you know, this was a scout who, uh, and I think the overall biggest question for me on Anthony Rendon, I think that the, the most legit question is the physicality. He is not big. He is an average-sized guy, and it's very difficult. He has, he's an average-sized guy with really special hands uh, and that whippy bat. And I think it's very fair to say that maybe this is going to be 55 or 60 power, but not big-time power, like more 20 to 25 home runs, not a 30-home run guy, despite the hands, just because of the lack of physicality. And that's fair, and then you combine that lack of physicality with his injury track record, that made this this uh, scout really question just how high uh, Anthony Rendon's ceiling would be. So I, I understand all that. I, I kind of like Dylan Bundy almost uh, as the number one guy, but it would have been very hard if I if I were the Pittsburgh Pirates in this scenario to take to be the first team to ever take a high school right hander number one overall when he's also saying he wants six years and thirty million dollars. I mean, I wouldn't give him anywhere close to that. I'd start it, you know. I'd start around $5 million. I'd start around uh, Turner. Uh, what was his first name? Jacob Turner? Right. I get his first name mixed up all the time. I'd start around Jacob Turner, and if I had to finish a little bit north of Rick Porcello, I'd be willing to go you know, a little north of – I'd be willing to give him a record contract, the best, biggest contract ever for a high school pitcher. But I wouldn't be given, willing to give him much more than that. You know. So. No, 
I, mean, I think that's what will settle in. I think he'll get – my guess is when all said and done, he'll get somewhere around the record $7 million that that Josh Beck and Rick Purcell got. And if he got a little bit more than that, it wouldn't surprise me. But it's not going to be close to the $30 million. And at the same time, I, I don't think anybody can turn down $7.5 million coming out of high school or, or college for that matter. I, I, I think he'll get signed. I do like how you couch that, though. Who would you have taken first overall? And I, I do think that the six guys were the six guys, and that's how it played out, uh, which is very exciting, uh, that it played out you know, the way that we thought it would play out as far as top six prospects. That seemed, Jim, to set a tone of teams were going to take who they wanted, not necessarily. Signability didn't seem like it was that big of a factor in the first round. I mean, it's obviously it's always a consideration, but the Diamondbacks didn't let the fact that was an unprotected pick uh, scare them off of Archie Bradley. Yes, I think the fact that Corey Spangenberg is signable and most likely the first first rounder who's going to sign uh, was a factor for the Padres at 10, but you'd heard for a long time the Padres were on Corey Spangenberg. Did, did you think signability – where do you think signability played in the most in the first round, if anywhere? Yeah, and I'm with you, John, and I think we saw this last year too. Teams took who they wanted – and figured we're going to get these guys signed. And I'll echo your two comments there. I think my favorite pick of the draft might have been Archie Bradley at seven. Yeah. Unprotected pick because it was a comp pick from last year for not signing Barrett Lauchs. And, you know, they're taking Archie Bradley was telling teams $20 million contract. That was his asking price. And, again, he's not going to get that. I think he's going to get more than Zach Lee got last year, which was $5.25 million. You know, he might get around a $6 million two-sport deal that's spread over multiple years. But if you're Arizona and you're picking, you know, they have the third overall pick on merit, it's because you had a bad team last year. You need to take the best possible guy, and they did that. And and I texted Jerry Depoto right before they made the pick and was asking who they're going to pick. And when when they he told me Archie Bradley, I was like, wow, great, you know, nice pick, love it, you know, taking the best guy. And Jerry texted back, it's been a great half hour for the Diamondbacks. Um, I love that. And then with Spangenberg, you know, I think the signability was a bonus to the Padres. Well, I think what that came down to was it seemed like a lot of the college pitchers, you know, after the first tier uh, of the first three picks of Cole, Holson, Bauer, backed up a little, little bit. There was a lot of college pitching in the draft. And, you know, Jed Bradley wasn't at his best down the end. Taylor Youngman had his worst start of the season in the regional. Uh, Matt Barnes went out and got killed in the regional. Uh, you know, Sonny Gray, you know, pretty good but still sometimes inconsistent with the command and I, and almost like I think teams got a little less excited about those guys as it came to draft day and I think with the Padres they love Spangenberg and I and they wanted him at 25 and I think if they could have gotten him with their pick at 25 they would have let him go but they couldn't they knew that there were a bunch of teams in the teens I think he could have gone as high as 14 to the Marlins or maybe 18 to the A's and they realized look we're not going to get him in the baseball draft because you can't trade up or down if you like a guy, you have to take him. And I think it came down to these these college pitchers that we thought were going to go around ten, you know, back then. You know, the the Cubs were another team we thought might take a college pitcher. The Indians we thought might take a college pitcher at eight, nine, ten. Instead, they go Lindor, Baez, Spangenberg. And you know, I do think Spangenberg is going to sign. You know, he'll be the first guy to sign out of the first round. But I think that was just kind of the cherry on top. I don't think the Padres looked at it like, you know, we have an unprotected pick at ten. We've got to get a guy we know will sign. I think it was we really like this guy's bat a lot. You know, I think guys told both of us, John, uh, you know, he might be the best pure hitter in the draft or the best pure hitter this side of Rendon, and, and they loved him and said, you know what, if we want him, we have to take him at ten. So let's take him at ten. Pure hit, plus run, athleticism, defensive options, if not versatility. Sign me up. I mean, Corey Spangenberg makes a lot of sense. 
Um, I guess the obvious signability guy in the first round was Chris Reed, Dodgers at 16. But I will say, I just talked to a scout the other day uh, who saw Chris Reed in high school and has seen him in college. Loves Chris Reed. Very bullish on Chris Reed. Thinks he'll start. Thinks he'll be a three-pitch physical left-handed starter. Thinks he's got a real shot to be a mid-rotation guy. Didn't think Chris Reed was that big of a reach at 16. Um, you know, some people are probably pretty bullish on that, and I think you and I both agree. Usually, especially when it comes to pitchers, we're going to give Logan White the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I agree. You know, I mean, I don't think the Dodgers situation is any secret. You know, right. their, their ownership's in pretty bad term, turmoil, and I know they've come out publicly and said this was not a signability pick. But you know, we kind of figured they're going to take a college guy, um, and I think they do like him. I, I heard the same things. I think Chris Reed had a lot of helium. I think if we re-released our top 200 prospects on the day of the draft or the day before, he would have been higher than 60. I think we had him right at the end of the sandwich round. I know there were teams in the first round, the Braves at 28. I, I think Chris Reed would have been – I don't ever buy. I know there was a, a report, and I think it was just somebody jumping on a rumor and, and – getting too crazy on it that the Astros were looking at it in 11 and trying to cut a deal. But I do think there were teams in the 20s that would have considered him very, very seriously. I, I, I don't think he would have gotten out of the first round. I don't think Chris Reed going 11 was the craziest rumor, though. The craziest rumor clearly was Onelkis Garcia Speck, a Cuban left-hander, uh, who was eligible for the draft for about two days, a little less than 48 hours. Um, I have it on pretty good authority. He wasn't going nine to the Cubs under any circumstance. Um, there were definitely some teams on him in the first round, though, Jim. And uh, it sounds like he's a first-round arm if he ever, if he had been in the draft. But how crazy of a rumor was Ona- Onelkis Garcia Speck? You ever remember anything remotely close to a last-minute Cuban sneaking into the draft in the first round? No, I mean I can't think. You know, Sunday night before the draft. I was talking to somebody, uh, a guy with a West Coast team. Is, or t- I was texting with him about 2 in the morning, <laughs> and I was asking about who they were looking at. And he said, you know, I don't think we'd do this, but we'd at least consider the Cuban left-hander. And I said, left-hander? Do you mean Jose Fernandez? I thought he was right-handed. And uh, the guy texted back, no, uh, S- Garcia. And I'm like, who? Yeah, I, I, I cannot think. I've been at Baseball America for about 20 years. I, I do not ever recall <laughs> on the night before the draft – being told, hey, here's a possible first-round pick that I had never, ever heard of in my entire life. So uh, that, w- that was quite unusual. Yeah, it was extremely unusual, and uh, Speck's story is unusual, and uh, the whole situation is unusual, and now he's a free agent apparently, which I don't think makes a ton of sense, but that's a whole other podcast. We shouldn't even get into that. But uh, that, was the, that was the big rumor of draft day, and I'm glad that Speck was not in the draft. Uh, Jim, let's a couple first. We, we already talked about the Diamondbacks. The Diamondbacks, we I think we both agree, did well for themselves. They get everything signed. I like the fact that Diamondbacks got several power arms. They also got Anthony Mayo. And who was their third pick? I'm already blanking out. Was it uh, Chafin? Andrew Chafin? Yep. Andrew Chafin Carpenter out of a uh, <laughs> out of Kent State. I don't know why I call him Carpenter. I always they, think they of, got Chafin in the sandwich round and Mayo in the second round. So yes, I, I like the, that that quartet of power arms. I thought, let's go other, over other picks we liked. Milwaukee with Taylor Youngman at 12 and Jed Bradley at 15. That's pretty good value and a pretty uh, pretty great, I think, outcome for the uh, Brewers, a farm system in need of a lot of help to get two top 10 caliber arms at 12 and 15. What were some other picks that you liked? 
Yeah, I like both of those. I mean, I, I just like – you know, I guess some of the picks I admire in the first round are are when teams like a guy and they just go get him. Like I, I know the Mets. You know, we reported it I think when we did our way too early, way, way too early mock draft on our draft preview back in mid-May. I had Brandon Nimmo going 13th to the Mets. And at the time, I had Mets fans going, you are insane. What do you think? I mean, Brandon Nimmo, come on. That's crazy talk. And I know the Mets liked him, and I kept hearing – they liked him, but you, you know they really wanted college pitchers. And you look, you know who who runs the Mets these days? Sandy Alderson, Paul D. Podesta. These are moneyball guys. These aren't uh, let's draft a high school outfielder from Wyoming guys in the first round. Um, and so I really liked that pick. I just thought that was a bold pick. I liked that one um, a lot. Uh, you know, it's, I liked. You know, just again, I think the multi-pick teams jump out at you. It, it amazes me as the as the big Rendon guy that the Nationals get Strasburg, they get Harper, and now they get Rendon. Plus, on top of Rendon, they get Alex Meyer at 23. And I'm not the hugest Alex Meyer fan because of the inconsistency, but this was a guy that was being talked about a little bit in the top 10. They get him at 23. They come back at 34. They get Brian Goodwin, who's one of the best athletes in the draft. Then they have a round off. They come back in the third round. And I don't know if they'll sign him, but I love the boldness. I love them grabbing Matt Perk in the third round. I and, agree. and I guess I'll use that to segue into one of my other favorite picks. Day two of the draft begins. I don't know what was first and foremost on your mind, but first and foremost on my mind is who's going to take Josh Bell? Yeah. Best high school hitter in the draft. His mom's a college professor, wants him to go to the University of Texas. I think they've even told teams I've heard $20 million. They just picked a crazy number that nobody's going to give him. So people you know, wrote a letter to teams, don't draft him, he's going to college. And you know, there was buzz. So in the first round, and I didn't think he was really going to go the first day because you weren't going to have to take this guy. So anyway, I'm wondering, okay, where's he going to go? Who's going to pick him? When are we going to hear his name? <laughs> first player out of shoots, Pittsburgh Pirates, Josh Bell. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if they're going to sign him, but I love the pick, John, because that guy has so much. He's such a tremendous value. If you sign him at pick 61, that's a lot better than the 61st player really has any right to be. And if you don't sign him. You don't lose anything really because you get picked 62 next year. They tried the same thing a couple of years ago with Tanner Shepherds, and they didn't sign him because Shepherds was not healthy enough to give big money to at the end of the summer. But that's exactly the type of thing a team like the Pittsburgh Pirates has to try to do. If you don't sign him, fine, but make the effort. You might The Pittsburgh Pirates just might wind up with, you know, they got the best player in the draft in their mind, and Garrett Cole with a top pick, and they might get the best high school hitter in the draft too. And Jim, they did the same thing last year with Stetson Alley. And got You're him right. signed. So they've done it three years in a row, which I think is a it's a pretty great pattern for an organization. I think it's, it's you're right, absolutely right about Shepard's a couple of years back. They did it last year with Seth Alley. They do it this year with Josh Bell. Jim, the whole second round was pretty fascinating. Uh, you had a lot of high upside guys. Josh Bell, and you know, uh, good college players, and Brad May- Brad Miller and Anthony Mayo and Jason Esposito, your next three picks. But then Cam Gallagher, the high school catcher. I think you and I both were pretty high on Cam Gallagher uh, and the scouting report we had on him. The Phillies take a quintessential uh, Phillies pick, pun intended, and Roman Quinn. Uh, Probably the fastest guy in the draft, right? Fastest guy in the draft, absolutely. The, the Indians take a high school pitcher, really, uh, it's probably as high as they've taken a high school pitcher since 2001, and Dylan Howard. The Cubs, you know, Dan Vogelbach was thought of as a late first round a lot of late first-round buzz on him leading into the draft. You know, the Cubs, they love Florida. You know, they, they go with Javier Baez, Dan Vogelbach. 
the two best high school hitters, not the best high school position players, but you're looking for high school hitters in the state of Florida, they got the two best in Baez and Vogelbach. Adrian Hauser, only the third best pitcher in Oklahoma, but a legit second-round guy. Milwaukee goes with upside and Jorge Lopez, who failed in his bid to become the highest-drafted pitcher ever out of Puerto Rico. That's still uh, Luis Adelano. That record is safe for another year with Luis Adelano. I loved the second-round picks uh, for a lot of teams. Daniel Norris of the Blue Jays uh, drops uh, from 16th on our board all the way to the 74th. Uh, the Blue Jays, Jim, an organization that took a super high-risk, high-reward draft. Uh, what do you make of the Blue Jays? How likely do you think Toronto is to sign all these guys from uh, from Tyler Beatty to Daniel Norris to you know right on down the line? Yeah, I liked how bold they were too, and I think uh, I don't think they'll get them all signed. I do think they'll get Beatty signed. I, I just don't think you take Tyler Beatty at twenty-one if you're not going to get him signed. And I've heard from people. I know he's got the Vanderbilt scholarship and wrote teams a letter they didn't want to sign too. I've heard in his case, I think that's more posturing and leverage. I think Tyler Beatty's going to sign. Uh, you know, Daniel Norris. Uh, you know, I guess there's a, a close to four million dollar price tag out there. Again, I, I don't think you're going to get to you know have to spend four million necessarily to sign Daniel Norris, but you're getting the top you know top high school lefty in the country with the 74th pick in the draft if you get him signed. I like the you know we'll see what's how healthy he is. You know, there've been mixed reports on exactly what's going on with John Stilson's shoulder. Right. If John Stilson's healthy, John Stilson's a late first round pick. And if you put him in the bullpen, he's getting to the big leagues real quick. So I, I liked a lot of those guys. I will admit some of their picks kind of, kind of threw me a little bit. You know, Jeremy Gabrzewski. You know, I do Texas. I did not see him as a second rounder. He's got a screw in his elbow. He's got a good arm, but more flashes stuff that maintains it. You know, was up and down all spring. Screw in his elbow. I, I was shocked he went in the second round. But again, I mean, I think with the draft, we say this all the time. You like who you like, and you take, you know, and you're going to take them. It's two straight years they've had a you know, surprising pick in Texas because last year Noah Syndergaard was not thought of as a consensus supplemental second-round guy, and they took him supplemental if memory serves. Yeah, and, you know, and, and the difference between the two was Syndergaard, you know, they did sign for a below slot, but Syndergaard was a guy who finished strong. He had started slow but finished strong, and so he was gathering steam. You know, is more of a guy who came out in the scrimmage early in the year showing some plus stuff, and then I actually had a scout compare him to Brandon Belt because Brandon Belt was the same – way as a Texas high school pitcher where he came out early and looked like, hey, this guy could be first couple round type of guy and then was pitching in the eight, you know, upper 80s for most of the season and, and lost some steam. And that's what I thought Gabrzewski was. And, and then he went second overall. Kind of was like, wow, I didn't, you know, didn't see that one coming. But, you know, interesting group of guys. And, you know, I, I don't know if they'll sign all of them. I think they had, what, five, you know, seven picks in the first two rounds. I don't know if they'll sign all those guys. But if you sign five, Five of them, you're still ahead of the game. And they had tons of other tough signs. I mean, Andy Burns, who's a kind of a summer follow, the kid uh, uh, out of Colorado originally, went to Kentucky, now in Arizona, uh, had to sit out the year transferring. Matt Dean, uh, tough sign. Andrew Suarez, out of the, uh, a, 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 you know, left-handed pitcher out of South Florida, who's a got a strong commitment to the U, uh, University of Miami. He's in their ninth round. Christian Lopes in the seventh round. Uh, this is just all the way around. That's the tough signability draft. Uh, Aaron Nola in the 22nd round. Uh, it is the all up and down, they, you know, up and down the, the list. That's just a really tough. Uh, that's going to be a tough uh, draft class to, to gauge, really, right up until uh, August 15th. But I like the boldness in Toronto. Uh, I think that makes. Uh, and if they do, if go ahead. I was going to say if they do what they did last year. You know, they had a bunch of picks and they signed a bunch of guys. They basically. 
you know, I think go after guys to, you know, they spend the money, you know, they have to spend, you know, even last year, they signed so many guys. They didn't sign Logan Ehlers, an eighth round pick. They offered 800,000 to, they didn't sign Chris Bryant, who could be a pretty high pick two years from now after three years at San Diego. They didn't sign two guys who went early in this year's draft, Chris Marlowe in the 21st round, Aaron Westlake in the second round. I just think their strategy is we're going to go get the best player in just about every round and we'll sign as many of these guys as we can and we won't sign all of them but we're going to sign a lot of them and and again i think that's the way you should approach the draft it just did i was talking to somebody this morning in fact who was saying it seems like teams have finally woken up to the fact that there's no point in not taking the tough signs until the 25th round and you see some tough signs going in the sixth round some guys going the 10th round it seemed like you know even three years ago if a guy was a tough sign you know he, he'd, he'd last until the third day of the draft and now teams are are you know, being more aggressive, taking these guys earlier, and I think, you know, making more of an effort to try to sign them. Speaking of uh, signability and lots of picks, Jim, uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, record haul, record number of picks. Was it like uh, 13 of the first 89? Something crazy like that. Um, yeah, 13 of the first 89. Um, what was your take on Tampa's haul? It looks like they, they mixed and matched, uh, you know, I, I think they were stunned that Taylor Guerrero and Mikey Mata lasted as long as they did. I, I think we were both surprised. And they seemed like they took the portfolio approach. Uh, you know, it's easy to like a draft with a lot of picks, uh, but I like the fact they mixed college, high school bat hitters, uh, a guy in Lenny Linsky who could move quickly out of their bullpen, uh, local guys like Getzman. I, I really liked what Tampa did with their extra picks. I like the way they mixed and matched. I get, you know, again, and I, maybe I'm the devil's advocate on this because I've been telling people, you know, I even wrote a column about it, you know, 12 picks out of the top 89, if they get two or three really good big leaguers, they're ahead of the game because you go back and look at all these teams with extra picks, and it seems like a great opportunity. But, you know, I, I, I think the stat was of the 11 teams who've – there have been 14 teams who've had seven or more picks in the top two rounds before this year. Three of them were recent. The other 11 teams combined, so you're talking about probably 85, 90 picks – found three all-stars out of those 85 or 90 picks. I loved what they did in the first round. You know, I thought they let the draft come to them. Guerrero and Montuk were two guys who were not supposed to be there for them. But I was not blown away by the rest of their draft, to be honest with you. you know, they had all these picks. I do like the mix, mixing and matching. Jake Hager, again, you like who you like. You have a million picks. You can take who you want to take. I did not see Jake Hager as a first-rounder. Um. Jeff Ames, Blake Snell in the sandwich round didn't blow me away. Um, you know, I like Kess Carter and Grayson Garvin where they got him. Tyler Goodell's interesting. You know, Brandon Martin's one of the better high school shortstops. You know, James Harris, tremendous speed. Wasn't seeing him as a sandwich guy, to be honest, John. I, I almost right. liked, to be honest, I liked their second round picks in Grandin Getzman and Lenny Linsky more than about half their sandwich picks. So, I mean, no, overall, I agree. I mean, obviously – ton of talent, and I like the amount of talent they amassed. I just – I wasn't blown away by what they did at the end of the first round and in the sandwich round. I, I don't think that's – I don't disagree with you on the – I like their second-round picks. I think that Getzman and Linsky and also Johnny Ironman in the third round, if he's signable, those guys are more attractive, impressive to me than a lot of their uh, supplemental guys. But I still think overall um, I kind of like how they approached it. On the other end of the spectrum, Jim, you had a couple teams in the Yankees and in the uh, Tigers – who had a paucity of picks. The Tigers didn't pick till 76th, and the Yankees didn't pick till 51st. Now, I was told the Tigers, uh, you know, off way deep off the record by a couple of sources, were trying to drive a couple of those high-priced 
uh, tough signability guys down to them, whether it was Josh Bell. I've heard them tied to Tyler Beatty for them tied to uh, uh, Daniel Norris. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, the one I've heard the most on is Beatty. I think they were trying to drive one of those players down to them at 76 and none of them got there. Um, right. And I think that goes back to what we were saying too. teams are being more aggressive on them. And right. I'll be honest, you know, looking at their draft, I mean, again, they had they were the disadvantage. They basically it was a second round pick, but because there were so many sandwich picks, they really didn't start what would have normally been, say, the middle of the third round and wound up being very they pretty much got Yeah, I mean they just pretty much took guys who fit there. They did they did not take the Nick Castellanos type of pick last year where you take a guy with a huge price tag as your top pick, you know, they did with Castellanos last year in the sandwich round and pay him. I mean James McCann, I mean, good defensive college catcher, okay bat, not a super sexy pick. I mean, Aaron Westlake, I like Aaron Westlake, but, you know, college first baseman. Jason King in the fourth round, athletic college third baseman. <coughs> Excuse me. Brandon Lloyd in the fifth round, I like the glove. It's not a special bat. It's just a very ordinary draft. I kept waiting for them to make a bold pick because the Tigers are usually pretty aggressive. And this year they just kind of took a guy who fit in the round where they took him you know, I don't know who their tough sign guy is. I mean, maybe their toughest sign is Tyler Gibson in the That's 15th it. round. But I don't think Tyler Gibson's like a first-round talent who makes up for not having an early pick either. Completely agree. I think you nailed the Tigers pick, uh, the, the Tigers uh, draft. And there's the Yankees, Jim. And uh, we've both heard from Yankee fans <laughs> who aren't real pleased with the Yankees. I just chuckle because we hear from it every year. Where if a Yankees fan, you know, the Yankees. Spend you know obviously more money in, in you know internationally major league level on their stadium than anybody else, and their fans are just ticked off every year. And it's like they blame you and me and everyone else. You know we, why aren't you writing about how unfair it is that everybody else is spending money? Believe me, the Yankees can spend money on the draft if they want to. They choose not to though. Some, it's, sometimes they it's do. Puzzling. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. I think I honestly think their 2007 draft. Uh, where they did spend a lot of money, Jim, and it hasn't really uh, – they haven't gotten a lot of returns from that draft. I think that colors their current draft uh, philosophy because they really went aggressive in 07 and spent a lot of money on a lot of players, and it hasn't really worked out for them. No, you're right. I mean, that year they, they went – you know, that year they spent $8 million, which I feel, still think is a team record. Uh, you know, and you're right. I mean, that year they actually spent – they beat uh, they beat the Rays. By $12,500 and outspent everybody else in baseball. And it was a weird draft because they gave Andrew Brackman, I mean, that, does, that just counts Andrew Brackman's guaranteed money. It doesn't count all the additional money he can make when they're picking up his options. But they gave their first round pick, you know, like a, an extremely generous $4 million deal, you know, with other stuff on top of it, even though he needed Tommy John surgery and wasn't going to pitch for a year. They gave, I know, at least two players in my Midwest region, Brad Suttle and Carmen Angelini. More money than those guys were telling teams was their asking price. Right. And neither one of those guys has worked out. And you're right. They, I mean, last year they went over slot for guys like Mason Williams and Ben Gamble and this and that, but they don't go crazy. You know, they, they, they spend kind of middle of the pack this year. And again, you know, I think Dante Bichette will cost a little bit over slot, but I'm just, I'm looking at their draft. And again, I'm not going to claim we have all the answers. We build our lists. They're consensus lists where we talk to a ton of sources, and it's a bunch of opinions from different people. But I don't think we saw Dante Pichette Jr. as a sandwich pick. I know having done Texas, I didn't see Sam Stafford as a second-round pick. We didn't have him in our top 200. He's a lefty who's got plus stuff and below-average command and control. 
and frankly can't even hold down a spot in Texas's weekend rotation. Uh, I, I just I, you with the Yankees, I guess I'm just expecting them to take you know Daniel Norris. Let's pay him. What's Josh Bell? We'll make a 15 million dollar run at him or something. I mean maybe that's a little out of you know out of expectation, but they just took to me what seemed like very generic guys with their picks. And I mean, I, 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 I just, I've heard, I hear it every year. And I'm, I'm sure I'm going to hear it again from other teams saying, boy, we are glad the Yankees do not flex their muscles in the draft like they could if they wanted to. I think that's very fair. And I mean, again, we don't have all the answers, but Matt Duran, their fourth round pick, I've talked to a couple scouts who've seen him since then. Uh, and I, that's a head scratcher. That guy was 23rd on our New York list out of 25 guys that we ranked. I know he has power. They, the, the, the emphasis clearly was power. Sam Stafford does throw hard. Jordan Cote has a projectable body. He could be a power arm down the line. But And then the other guys they took, the offensive guys were power. Greg Bird and Matt Duran, they're carrying tools power. Um, it was a surprising draft. I think it's a, uh, it's a draft that's going to rely a lot on guys like Justin James and some of their uh, – Daniel Camarena, some of their later round picks signing to make that draft a good draft. Uh, I, I don't mean to be judgmental right off the bat, but that's a that's a that's a weird draft. And their 2000, I really think, I've thought this since then, their 2007 draft where they went out on a limb for Angelini, out on a limb for Bradley Suttle, out on a limb really in some ways on Brackman. Uh, he hasn't paid at off least financially. Yet. I mean, it hasn't paid off. Austin Romine's the only guy in that draft, who and, and Brandon Laird who've really even had good minor league careers. Um, and Brandon Lair was like a 27th round pick. So that draft where they did flex their money, they ch- Chase Weems, they traded him. It uh, t- wasn't Tyler Grote in that draft class. Yeah, I think so. Do you, you know how much money Brackman's collected on his contract so far? $9 million? Six. He's six. made six, and he's in the fifth year of his contract and has yet to pitch in the big leagues. And, and he's due. He's due. He's got a – if they pick up his option next year, he gets – a minimum of a million and a half dollars, two million if he's in the big leagues. And if they pick up his option after that in 2013, he gets another 1.6 to 2.25 million. Plus, he has all kinds of, of thresholds based on how many appearances and innings and days he's on the roster. And he could wind up collecting. He could he could wind up being pitched two years in relief for the Yankees and make like 11 or 12 million dollars off his draft contract. That's a pretty good agent. That's a pretty yeah. good agent. It's a pretty good contract and a pretty good agent. That's the Baseball America podcast with John and Jim. Uh, Jim, any other uh, highlights of that first or second round for you or any other teams stand out for you? I really kind of like uh, – I made a lot of the points I wanted to make. I do think Washington had a pretty intriguing haul. We've talked about that. Uh, we've talked about a team that had a lot of extra picks. Uh, we talked about teams like – you know, to me, Detroit didn't have an exciting draft. The Yankees had a real head-scratching draft. Anyone else jump out to you? Well, I mean, we'll just let's 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 inflame the Yankees fans a little bit more. <laughs> and this is a team they always complain about in the draft, which does exactly what I think the Yankees should do. Is you look at the Red Sox, who yes, they had extra picks, but the Red Sox go aggressively after guys round after round after round. And I think their draft once again is going to be one of the better drafts. It, I know going into the draft, their hope was at 19 that one of the good college pitchers somehow fell to them. They get Matt Barnes. I, I think the only negative for them on Matt Barnes is that he grew up a Yankees fan. And, yeah, I'm being facetious there. But, you know, they were thrilled to get Matt Barnes at 19. They wanted to get, you know, one of the two. You know, they basically got who they thought was the best catcher in the draft at 26, Blake Swihart, who's going to be a tough sign. But they're, they're, they're in it to try to get him. They got, you know, Sandwich Round, Henry Owens, 
you know, one of the best high school lefties available. They got him in the sandwich round. They get, I thought, one of the better picks of the draft, had a terrible year. He got hurt. The guy can play. He, he's more of a player than a tooled-up guy. I'll take Jackie Bradley Jr. with 40th pick in the draft every day of the week. Yep, I you know, agree. And you just keep going on and on with these guys. I mean, Williams, Jerez in the second round. I mean, mystery as to exactly who or what this guy is, but, you know, you could dream on the upside potential. Third round, they got Jordan Weems, another projectable catcher. Fourth I talked, round, I just talked about Noe Ramirez. College, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you. I just talked to a junior college coach the day of the draft about Jordan Weems, and he was like, Man, that guy really came on strong down the stretch. He's gotten, he keeps on getting stronger. He was very high on Jordan Weems. So yeah, and I mean, you just, keep going on. You know, Noe Ramirez. They got Noe Ramirez exactly where you should get Noe Ramirez. I mean, he's more of a changeup guy than overpowering, but he can really pitch. Mookie Betts, Mookie same Betts, thing. Interesting athlete. You know, Miguel Pena, you lefty from San Jack. You know, he's a pitchability lefty. But let's keep going. You know, Cody Kukuk in the seventh round, one of the better projectable high school lefties in the draft. No doubt. Eighth round, John, one of your guys, Senquez Golson. Love Senquez. <laughs> In the eighth round, if you don't sign him, okay, fine. You know, he's a Mississippi football player. He's one of the best athletes in the whole draft. And you can you can just go on and on. You know, they'll they'll take some shots in the lower rounds too. Matt Spaulding, one of the better pitchers in Kentucky Daniel, this year. Daniel Gossett, Blake Forsland, a couple of power arms from the southeast, no doubt. You know, Julius Gaines was a guy who before the year came in with a lot of hype. Absolutely. And you know, got hurt, didn't have the year, but again, maybe you steal him in the thirty second round. And you know, again, the Red Sox won't sign all these guys. But they're as aggressive as anybody. If you factor in what the slots of a team are, because the Red Sox aren't picking at two where you're going to spend $5 million on a guy. I think if you're talking about teams that don't have that, that top five pick, the Red Sox year in, year out, spend as much as anybody. And it's just that, you know, I, I guess we, so many things get put in the context of Red Sox versus Yankees. It, it just amazes me the Red Sox do this year after year, and then you see them trade. You know, they trade a bunch of guys to get Victor Martinez. They trade a bunch of guys. They go out and get Adrian Gonzalez. They're just in position to do that. You know, they, they recycle their prospects and they trade them. Uh, and I'm just, I'm, I'm, it just it sticks out to me more that the Yankees don't do this when you see this is what the Red Sox are doing every year. It does stick so out. So now I've inflamed Yankees nation. So It does stick out, and it's awfully odd. There's no doubt that it's awfully odd that the Yankees don't flex their muscle more. In the draft, I don't quite understand it. They've had some success with homegrown drafted players. I mean, their whole bullpen when they won the World Series in 2009 was homegrown drafted guys. Hughes. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head, John. I think I think that 2007 draft, they were going to be more aggressive because they, they were really more, I mean, more passive than this in years previous to that. And they got super aggressive and it didn't pay off. And it, it just seems to me, I mean, they obviously have a finite number of what they can spend on everything. And it, it seems like the Yankees are content to be spending you know more money than just about anybody internationally and be middle of the pack draft wise then go all in on the draft all right jim who's your personal cheese ball for the draft you know who mine is amir garrett 22nd round the st john's basketball recruit went to the reds uh you know uh, i'm very excited that i am hoping that amir will sign a two-sport deal that lets him uh go to st john's play basketball in the winter and then uh, you know, come to come down to Arizona in the summer and pitch for the uh, Reds first, and obviously extended spring that kind of stuff. Get into a routine, and then go out and see uh, you know pitch in the minor leagues. Uh, for me, a basketball and baseball seasons you know fit together very well, and I would love to see uh, what Amir Garrett can do uh, playing both sports. It'd be even more fun if he went to St. John's and did both and. I helped Eddie Blankemeyer's ball club. I, I love Eddie Blankemeyer and the St. John's baseball program, but uh, I'm interested to see where uh, what happens with uh, 
with Amir, uh, who's who's some of your personal cheese balls? Who, guys, that, players you like or draft picks specifically that you like? Well, as you say, I mean, the Reds drafted Lucas Arrear last year too, right? So they, they can, did can work out. My my, my Northern Iowa guy, after they dropped baseball and he was on that basketball team upside Kansas, they can they can they can play a little bat, little hoops during the uh, during the summer. I, you know, I don't have like a a super sleeper, but I guess two guys I was kind of interested to see where they would go and, and interested fall. One guy. I don't – this guy just seems like he's flown under the radar, and maybe it's the program he plays in, which I think is one of the better unsung programs in college baseball, is Kess Carter from Western Kentucky. I, I, you always hear about how there aren't enough you know, all-around athletes in college baseball because they signed the position, athletic position guys out of high school. And to me, I mean, Kess Carter is a guy who can hit for average. The power's at least average. The speed's close to a six. He's a good center fielder. I, I had two different area scouts throw out a Jim Edmonds, you know, ceiling on him. Not saying he's going to be Jim Edmonds, but saying, you know, if this guy reaches his ceiling, he could be Jim Edmonds. Um, I thought that was a great pick for the Rays at 56. And another guy just, uh, you know, personal interest in, just because he was so local to me, was, you know, Charlie Tilson, yep. who goes to my son's high school, was a second-round pick of the Cardinals, uh, you know, lit it up at the area code games. I don't think he's quite the power guy that he might have looked like at the area code games you know he's more of a center field leadoff type i'll be interested i'm really interested actually to see if the cardinals sign him i I don't think he's going to be an easy sign the family values education cardinals did take him in the second round which leads me to believe that they think they're going to get that deal done but those are probably the two two guys i'm interested in more than a lot of others yeah i think i am too and uh uh, a couple, a couple little trends i wanted to mention the first time the twins have taken a college position player in the first round since Travis Lee 15 years ago, with as they get Levi Michael, how about it's the first time the White Sox, the White Sox, the Rockies, have drafted three high school players in the first 10 rounds since 2001. Those are a couple little tidbits I dug up, Jim. Uh, any other teams kind of step out of their usual trend in your mind? Well, not so much a trend, but when you mentioned the White Sox, it, it's it's unbelievable. We are now in year two of of Osnigate. There is still. <laughs> You know, last year, Ozzie Guillen was upset that his son, Osney, who was a, um, I guess, high school player in Florida at that point, did not get drafted higher than the 22nd round. The White Sox, of course, drafted Kenny Williams' son in the sixth round a couple years earlier. And while Kenny Williams Jr. is really athletic, he, I guess if we're being charitable here, I guess the best way to put it, did not have a lot of success or even playing time in college and picking him in the sixth round with his head scratcher. So last year, Ozzy Guillen was very offended. It led to a very, uh, you know, a war of words, a lot of disagreement over his son being insulted. So anyway, this year, uh, Ozzy didn't get drafted by anyone. And, and Ozzy has been quiet on the matter, although <laughs> it was very interesting that, that Ozzy's son, Oni, who is like the Twitter instigator and lost a job with the team because he kept inflaming people with tweets. When they took Keenan Walker in the, I guess with their top pick in the sandwich round, Onegian tweeted something to the effect of, that's great, they're taking black players who are athletes. Might be nice if they got someone who could play. So we have Twitter controversy swirling around the Gians and Osney didn't get picked and there's a column in the Tribune this morning which actually made some sense saying that baseball should cut the draft from 50 rounds. It's way too many. They should cut it to 25. And maybe so teams don't feel obligated to draft all these friends and relatives and sons and 
The White Sox even took Ron Schuler's daughter years ago. That maybe they ought to have a rule that after that you can't draft a person, who, a relative who has ties to the organization unless you take him in the first ten rounds. But uh, the, the Osney Gian, for a guy who I know very little about, who does not seem to be a top prospect by any means, second year in a row is in the headlines up here in Chicago. Last year didn't get drafted high enough. This year got drafted way too high. Now I I, I ranked him in Florida. I had one scout who liked. Well, you had him on the list last year too. Right, but I, I talked. I talk, I bared down on him this year. Now that Miami Dade team had a lot of scouts, a lot of scouting attention this year. Obviously, Brian Goodwin. They had a couple pitchers who got drafted. Law, Derek Law was like an eighth round, ninth round pick, and then uh, Jareel Cotton, who was a lower round pick. A couple pitchers with arm strength that you had to, and you weren't just seeing Brian Goodwin. There was. There were at least three guys people wanted to go see on that team. So Osney Gian got seen a lot. I had one guy who's like, you know, I don't even think I wrote Osney up, but I did list him. I probably listed him too high in retro. Not even just in retrospect, at the time. Um, I'm not as good on my deep state lists. I Sometimes after 50, I just wish I could just go alphabetical order on a state like Florida. <laughs> it's really hard, and I had a really hard – so I had one scout just say – I won't evaluate Osney again. I'm not touching him. Just not touching him. Wouldn't tell me anything about a player because I'm not touching him. And I had one scout say, you know, I just don't like him as a player. I didn't like him at a high school. I don't want to bash the kid. Just don't think he's a guy that our organization is interested in. Then I had a third scout who was like, you know, Osney Gian's pretty interesting. I think he's he doesn't have a carrying tool, so I don't think he's a first 20-rounds pick except for the name. But he's a good ball player. He plays hard. He has pretty good instincts. He's fringe average tools all the way around, but I think he gets a lot out of his tools. If you wanted to believe in him, maybe he's like a fourth outfield type, that kind of thing. And that was like, that was the high end I've gotten on Osney Gian, a guy who thought he was like fringy all the way around, but plays hard, gets the most out of it. That, that was the optimistic thing. That made me rank him fairly high. That, I do remember I had the one evaluation of him, that was that made me run him up the list fairly high, and for the record, it was not a White Sox scout, but um, but it was interesting because I really did try to bear down on him, and I thought for sure he would get drafted, and when he didn't get drafted at all, I was pretty shocked. <laughs> you know, you know, I, I don't know if part of it is, and this happens sometimes if the guy's not a top level prospect. Yeah, his other teams will leave the guy. That's for the it. team he's tied to to take him. That's it. And, and I just think the White Sox didn't want to get go through the same thing they did last year where they weren't going to overdraft him and then they didn't want to insult Ozzy by, in Ozzy's mind, underdrafting him. Fortunately for the White Sox, they all, another guy who's a relative, um, best high school hitter in the state of Tennessee, uh, state of Kentucky this year is Jackson Lauman, whose father, Doug, is a scouting director of the White Sox. And Doug told me that he told Jackson several times, I love you. I am not drafting you after what happened here last year. The White Sox are not taking you. And I know Jackson got taken. I forgot to see who took him, but he got taken in the 31st round. But Doug was just not going to have his son drawn, drawn into the middle of all that, too. That's really awesome. And we, had, uh, and we have that in the Cincinnati Red system with Sean Buckley, son of Chris, the scouting director there. And they drafted him in the sixth round. But I talked to a couple of scouting directors at the uh, ACC tournament about Sean Buckley because I'd heard – uh, one of my last calls in the state of Florida uh, was to bear down on West Florida draft uh, junior colleges. And the last uh, guy I talked to said, hey, uh, Sean Buckley's going to go real good. 
I said, well, how good? Like 10 to 20? Because to me, 10 to 20 is good for a junior college guy. And he said, right. oh, no. He said, oh, no, he's going 6 to 10. And I said, wow. And he said, yeah, he said, yeah you know, like this guy was – and so he broke him down. I broke down Sean Buckley. I, I didn't elaborate too deep because um, it was my last source, and uh, I ran out of gas. <laughs> but, uh, but Sean Buckley, I, it sounds like he's got power and speed, some athleticism, corner profile, maybe third base. More likely right field, but maybe third base. Real arm strength. And I talked to a couple of scouting directors at the, uh, who confirmed it at the ACC tournament. It was like, oh, yeah, this guy is going to go real good. And uh, I tried to pin down Chris Buckley about him, his dad. And Chris was just like, oh, yeah, you know, had a good spring. Very excited about him. I ran my scouting report by Chris. He was like, not going to confirm or deny it, but he's my son. But I'm really proud of him. Had a good year at junior college this year, and he's excited to – you know, he was excited about his future in, in baseball. And that's all Chris was going to say about it. But um, and he didn't want to evaluate his own son. And then they went and took him in the sixth round. And J.J. Cooper in our office loves uh, – he, he hates him some nepotism. <laughs> he really hates it. But he loves himself some Chris Buckley and some Reds. Too, he though. does. He does. So he was torn. That's exactly – that. you followed me. That's exactly what the problem – he was torn. He was like, do I like this pick or not? I said, I think you're going to like that pick because I just got told sixth to tenth round and – so I was happy to see Chris take Sean because I think uh, you know, the last the last little tidbit I heard was at the Major League Scouting Bureau in its last report before the draft that put a pretty big number on uh, on Sean Buckley. So pretty interesting couple of stories there. And uh, I think the Bureau report really helped the Reds take Chris Buckley's son, Sean, in the sixth round because it sounded like there was a pretty – he was going to go in the sixth to tenth round. So if he's that kind of a talent – why not take your own son, you know? So uh, the draft has had so many fascinating stories like that, Jim. Um, we probably should do another podcast next week and talk about some more of those. But we'll get, I'm going to see you in Omaha, I hope. I'm staying there till the 22nd. Are you coming down? You should come down earlier than later if you don't have for sure tickets. So the 22nd is – are you staying through for the whole thing? Or No, I'm going down the 16th to the 22nd. Come down early. So what, what, come on. You got you to – what day is the 22nd? I, I can't I think know. that far ahead. The draft is – is that a Wednesday? It's a Wednesday. Well, we're going to miss you again. We're Summer. we're going to miss you because we're we're coming in. We drive in Thursday night, uh, head straight to the Drover. We get in around eight o'clock, stay <laughs> eat at the Drover, <laughs> and then go see the Friday games. And last year, I think I told you this, and we'll, we'll wrap this up. We can talk about the College World Series forever. But my two highlights of going to the Drover is the whole family came out last year, all six of us, and we're eating. And about two thirds the way through the meal, the waitress comes over. And says he didn't want me to say anything until he left. But there's a gentleman over there who thought it was really nice that, you know, all six of you, you know, the family was going out to dinner and he picked up the cost of your meal, which just floored me. I mean, Omaha is perhaps the nicest city I've ever been in in terms of the people. And that floored me. So we got a free meal at the Drover, which that's a great story. Even, the, only, the only way a meal at the Drover can get any better, I guess, is if it's free. Yeah. And then, uh, and then secondly, that was the night where Oklahoma had South Carolina B. And, and South Carolina rallied. I want to say it was Jackie Bradley, right? I think game-winning hit, yeah. or at least game tying hit, and then scored the game-winning run. Yeah. In the twelfth inning, we wound up staying late at the Drover because we wanted to see the end of the game. So uh, that that was my. Th- but we always go in on that Thursday. So I you got to. I know. Stay I'll, for the whole tournament sometime. Well, two little kids. It's, be, it's just tough. And I always enjoy. Of course, I always enjoy our one of our first trips to the Drover that I can remember was when we uh, met the the big ragu, big ragu and his crew of ragu, which was just. Uh, which was beyond tremendous. That was a, a, a Drover experience we'll never forget. 
and uh, looking forward to making some new memories in the new ballpark and going to lament the old ballpark being gone. But uh, We need to do like a Drover podcast. We ought to, we ought to say, be like a good excuse. <laughs> we'll set up a little podcast there in the Drover. You know, they had that little area in the front with the comfortable chairs. Just tell Aaron to bring his laptop like, this year. Yeah, we'll, we'll do a little podcast from the Drover and maybe – there's always baseball people in there. I remember one year when Kevin O'Sullivan was, uh, I guess uh, – coaching at uh, I guess at Clemson right he was assistant coach at Clemson and they'd been eliminated by their good friends at South Carolina that day and uh you might even have been there John I know I was in there with my oldest son age yeah it was rooting for it was gonna be Texas South Carolina in the finals and Kevin O'Sullivan came over to the table because I was either with you or with Aaron Fitt whoever and Kevin knew knew you guys and and Kevin you know obviously Nothing worse at Clemson than losing to South Carolina. Yeah, and and Kevin was you know you know just very gracious and you know chatting up you know AJ was probably uh, you know it was like eight six, or nine. Seven. I remember that. Yeah, two thousand two. Yeah, two thousand two. So AJ was seven, and uh, and I think he asked AJ who he was rooting for. I remember that he asked AJ who he's going to root for in the finals, and AJ said Texas. I remember Kevin got this big smile and he That's said, "That's right, me too." <laughs> I remember so, that very, I just remember very well. This guy, they just had this galling loss to their arch rival, and he was sitting there chatting up my son. And it, you know, believe me, I am not surprised that you know they're attracting you know all kinds of tremendous recruiting classes to Florida. Uh, I think even knew, we knew back then Kevin was going to be a good coach, but but lots of good memories at the Drover. Absolutely, lots of good memories in Omaha. And uh, since I won't see you in Omaha, I will definitely see you at Chase Field. And Arizona for the futures game, so always look forward to okay, that as well. Your typical, uh, you know, last second like Priceline super discount flight with like three connections where they lose your bag uh, before you get to Omaha. I will not do that this you, year. <laughs> get a direct flight and bring your luggage with you this year. <laughs> Good advice from the person who hired me at Baseball America magazine, lo these many years ago, Jim Callis. Jim, thanks. Fun podcast. Great work on the draft, and we'll see all of you on the next Baseball America podcast. For Jim Callis, I'm John Manuel. Until next time, so long, everybody. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.